Are you interested in free theological training? Our flagship sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, offers free theological training through their For the Church Institute. This semester, they launched three new classes, New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 with Dr. Patrick Schreiner and Missional Leadership with Dr. Charles Smith. Both have been guests of the show. These classes, along with others they offer, The Story of Everything with Jared Wilson, The Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. This is Kyle Worland. I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up, Jen? What's up, JT? Hey, what's up? Hey, guys. How you doing? Um, we're doing well. Uh, for the listener, JT is uh, post, this is post-dental operation JT. So Our he's favorite, maybe all. possibly our favorite JT. Mm-hmm. Yep. You never know. We got to see how this hour goes, <laughs> but I'm... Uh, I'm dealing with a little surgery over here, but I'm hanging in there. Okay, well, that's great, man. Well, hopefully you don't say anything in this episode that you then have to attribute to the influence of painkillers. You know, this is the time to do it, right? I, I mean, guess it would be. The, this is the That's episode. Plausible yeah. deniability. Well, hey, listen. Um, if you are listening to this in 2023, then you're a part of our Patreon community, and we're answering your questions. These are the questions you submitted. If you're listening to this after the first of the year, then uh, you would have heard this uh, early and ad free, and had an opportunity to submit your own question. If you were a part of the best audience in podcasting over at Patreon, if you want to find out more about how you can do that, go to trainthechurch.com slash support. People ask us, why do we run the Patreon? Um, I'll tell you, uh, we are you. We basically use the Patreon support that we have to offset the cost of starting up some of the great podcasts that you've come to know and love, like Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson, Tiny Theologians with Amy Kate Gannett, Family Discipleship with Adam Griffin, uh, Cassie and Chelsea, or Confronting Christianity with Rebecca McLaughlin. The Patreon helps us kind of do venture podcasting almost. And so we really appreciate the support of that community. I think it's the best uh, audience in podcasting, and you have asked great questions. And so if you're a part of our Patreon community, thank you for the questions you submitted here. Um, I have, I've addressed all of them here. So if your question is not answered here, please feel free to reach out to engineer Brad and say, Hey, they didn't answer my question. He'll forward it on to me. And maybe I'll even send you a private message. That's just, Hey, (laughs) here's my thoughts on this question. So I'm not committing to J- JT or Jen to that, but I I will. I will. As the mayor of the podcast, uh, I'm happy to do it. Um, okay, I'm riffing now. Too long. Vamping too long. Here we go. First question is from Stacy. Thank you, Stacy. If God didn't reveal his name as Yahweh until he told Moses, why do we see Moses using that name throughout the book of Genesis in quotations by Adam in Genesis 4.1, uh, Lamech in Genesis 5.29, and Noah in 9.26? So... Anybody want to take a swing at this? Okay, I think I'm understanding this question correctly. You're saying that if it's not until Exodus that we hear God 
described as Yahweh, then why would we hear him, that he tells Moses that? And why would we hear that in earlier mm-hmm. portions of the Pentateuch? That's right. That's yeah, right. so um, that's because Moses is writing with hindsight. And so yeah. when he composes Genesis, he is employing what was revealed to him at a particular point in time, but he's employing it as someone who is on the far side of that. So that's right. I was trying to think of an example, but one is not coming to mind. You guys got one? I don't know that I have an example of it, but I oh, agree I know. with what you... Here be an example. Great. So like um, you, you have a child named Lydia and mm-hmm. you didn't know what her name was going to be until um, she came into your home and you gave her that name. But when you talk yeah. about her, um, you know, before you adopted her and mm-hmm. she had received the name Lydia, you would not just call her the baby who would later be called Lydia. You would call her Lydia. That's right. That's that's a great that's a great picture of that. That's good. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. Stacy. what a great question. Uh, Austin asks, I think when most people think of God in Exodus, in the Old Testament in general, they think of the Father. Could you all discuss the work of the economic trinity throughout Exodus? Hey, JT, I think this one's got your name all over it. Do you guys really want to go down this path? <laughs> we can do it if you want. <laughs> no, I'm not going to take us down a Christophany okay, path. Thank you. It's important to know that God is always God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And maybe the easiest way we can think of God acting as this triune God is all things come from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. There is nothing that God does that is only the Father or only the Son or only the Spirit. And the reason that is, is there's, there's only one God, and this God is acting that way in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in Joshua, in Judges, and also in Acts. I mean, we don't want to think about the New Testament as only being the work of God the Holy Spirit. It's not. It's God the Father, who has God the Son sitting at his right hand, who is deploying and sending his Spirit to the church. So, Every single thing, when we think God did, we can always say God the Father did this through God the Son by the means and by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I love it. And that really begins, I don't want to continue the answer for too long, that begins in Genesis 1, mm-hmm. when you see the Spirit hovering over the waters. The, the Spirit hovering over the waters is not just out there hanging out there by himself, like, what am I supposed to be doing here? It's God the Father through God the Son in the power of God the Spirit creating order out of chaos and bringing all things to life. There we go. Uh, Billy asked this question. This doesn't really pertain to the Exodus episodes, but what are your thoughts on life after death? I've always been taught to be absent from the body is to be present with, uh, with the Lord, but I listened to a Bible project podcast that taught that we'll be in a deep sleep until the second coming of Christ when the dead in Christ will rise. Billy, great question. Um, and uh, let me just begin here. Really grateful for the Bible project guys don't see eye to eye with them on everything. Uh, and I'm sure they wouldn't see eye to eye with us on everything. And that's totally fine. But just want to say nothing I'm about to say should be seen as trying to, you know, stomp on the Bible project guys, great guys. They love the Bible. They love the Lord. They're trying to do good stuff out there. We're grateful for their content and their work. I will say I disagree with this. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're wrong for sure. Uh, but I understand why they would say it. it is a tenable view uh, within the scope of the Christian tradition to believe in something called soul sleep mm-hmm. or the idea that Christians, uh, when they die, they go into 
a deep sleep or some sort of spiritual slumber. And then they're awakened in the resurrection of the dead at the end of the end of the story. Um, That's, that's not my view. I don't want to speak for JT or Jen here. Um, I, I would say that when we die before the second coming of Christ, that we go to be with the Lord. Now we do not go to be with the Lord in the resurrected bodies that we will one day be granted in the final resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the manner of our existence with the Lord in that time between? Truthfully, I, I can't tell you. Um, I do not know. It does seem based off of like a story like the, uh, the story of uh, Lazarus, uh, that there is a sense in which we are in some sort of figural form is maybe what I would call it. Maybe old theologians would call it a spectral form. Um, but I do not believe it is the final resurrection body that would be given to us in the resurrection of the dead. Cause that has not yet happened as it will happen in the second coming of Christ. And so we, when we die, I believe that we do go to be with the Lord. I, I believe to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord while we await the final resurrection in at which point all those who have died already will be, I don't want to say united together, but will be with the Lord in a resurrected body for good forever. So can I ask a any, question? Any other? Sure. <laughs> I don't know. Are you part of Patreon? <laughs> I'm going to have to contribute. Um, well, I'm just curious if you think it makes a difference. Do I think it makes a difference if we are? It- yeah. Cause I mean, part of me is like, well, I don't really care. I think it's an interesting conversation, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure I really I'm super invested in the conversation. Should I be invested in the conversation? I think that there is a question of biblical fidelity to some of the passages where it seems most clear, Uh, specifically like when Jesus tells the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. Either Jesus is the soul. I think the soul sleep version of that story is Jesus lying to the thief on the cross. Well, I actually land where you do. You do. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. like, if someone is listening, you know, it's like, does it really matter? Could it be a question of like perception that we don't perceive that we're in a soul sleep? And as far as it's, you know, our, our human perception that that we are just with the Lord, like at that time. Because again, you're talking about the intersection of time and eternity, yeah. In in some sense, and we're trying to assign timelines to things that maybe that's not the way to even think about it. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I don't know either. I'm trying to think of what the collateral damage, like, is there some sort of collateral damage to another key essential of the faith that would be, that would be created if we believe in some sort of version of soul sleep? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, maybe it'll come back for another Q&A. Maybe so. Um, the <laughs> next the next time that we have a Q&A yeah. is a submission from Jan Watkins. Yeah, I'm going to go donate on, $8 uh, real fast. I'll be right back. <laughs> Um, all right. I'll jump in if you do. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Susan puts this on the table. Uh, tell me a story with no identifying names about someone that you've mentored, coached, taught, discipled that has really grown and flourished who might be really kicking it for the kingdom now. I like that, Susan. All right. Uh, how did the relationship begin? What contributed to their growth? So somebody that you've seen just Mm -hmm. really come alive Mm -hmm. within the scope of your ministry, with no identifying names and just kind of how that began and what contributed to their growth. That's a great question, Susan. We've never gotten that question before. That is a good question. I'm going to let you guys answer because I feel like we had an episode where I got to have some of those people actually talk about it. So, and I I actually, I just had coffee with two of them. So you guys knock yourselves out. Well, there was uh, this one time I met Jen Wilkin and she, (laughs) no, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No names aside, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a person that's on staff at a church that we all worked at 
that showed up in my office, just kind of like Bible open saying, I don't know much about this. And she, uh, I didn't really have a deep personal relationship with her that we became friends and, uh, but it was more in corporate situations mm-hmm. that I watched her, you know, start our, uh, core classes and eventually do our training program and eventually jump into some residency stuff and then eventually go to seminary and jump on staff at a church and is now teaching those environments. Mm-hmm. And that was really one of the things that we all hoped for. I, I don't want to, I don't want to take personal credit for that because I, I don't, I didn't have like a hundred coffees uh, with this person and, and like spiritually develop them and disciple them. And I think that's important for us to even remember whether you're at a small church context or leading a home group or whether you're at a big church context, you can create processes and systems that allow people to take the next step to follow Jesus. And that's what I saw in this person is, I mean, she showed up and basically said, I don't know that I know anything about this. I'm, I've been listening to good sermons and I love Jesus, but I don't know how to follow him. I don't, I, I want to grow. And and I think we created a system where that became possible, where she was able to take steps of kind of in the novice amateur world of, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm going to take the next step all the way to she's now teaching in those environments. That's cool. And that's something I'm really proud of. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's awesome. The people I think about are, there's a couple, they're now in like the greater Houston area. And when uh, I took my first ministry posting at my home church, uh, this is gosh, this was right out of college. Uh, we had a couple that was kind of marginally involved in the church that helped us start like a college and young adults group that met at our house. And um, they really went from like marginally engaged in the church to like a key disciple making influence in the life of our community in that church. And then about the time that we were moving up to North Texas to start working uh, at a church up here, uh, they moved to the greater Houston area and they got involved with a faithful church there and are just like actively discipling their kids. And um, I wouldn't say they're first generation Christians, but they are first generation like disciple makers. Uh, and that's been a really cool thing to just see the Lord continue that work in them and with them uh, and to see their family grow in family discipleship, even as they are like now meaningfully leading and participating in a local church. So that's really cool to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you missed the episode where we did this with Jen for the whole episode, uh, where I think <laughs> we both felt encouraged really and embarrassed her, um, <laughs> uh, then you should go check out that episode. It was a lot of fun for us, uh, for her, not so much, but uh, <laughs> it was really sweet. All right, we got another question here, and this one. I don't know that we had a name attached to it. I couldn't tell in the way that engineer Brad sent them to me. So if you had a name on this and I don't say your name, blame Brad. Alternative question. What's your opinion on sushi? You guys like sushi? I love sushi. Really? Okay. Yeah, I love it. I'm new to the sushi game. I did not think I would like sushi. And then one of my co-pastors about a year ago was like, let me just take you to get sushi. And he Mm -hmm. took me to get sushi and I really enjoyed it. Now yeah. I like sushi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. JT? I like really good sushi. Yes. I don't like, like if you're going to give me sushi from a gas station, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but ironically, last night after my procedure, my son was eating sushi. They got sushi on the way home. And I was like, that looks like the best thing ever. And I can't eat it. I was like <laughs> sipping chicken noodle soup through a straw. And he was just chowing on some sushi. I missed out. Have you ever eaten airport sushi? 
Never. Yeah, I'm not doing that. No. It wasn't you, terrible. No. It oh wasn't my, my proudest gosh. moment, but it wasn't terrible. <laughs> I'm, I'm just glad you're still with us after airport sushi. Um, all right. Danielle says, uh, you all have done such good work in the area of defining and applying generous biblical complementarianism, both in word and deed. I've been thinking about how this plays out beyond preaching and teaching the Bible into other teaching contexts. Where do you see single gender spaces being valuable versus mixed gender spaces? For example, do you see men and women learning inductive Bible study methods together, spiritual disciplines formation? How would men and women share in teaching in those spaces? Okay, so Jen, could you maybe talk mm. real quick about the value of single gender spaces? Because I've heard yeah. you talk about this a lot. And I think people, when they start to catch this vision, go, mm-hmm. oh, okay, great, let's just eliminate all single gender spaces at all. Yeah. And we've told people like, oh, hold on, we love your heart, but like maybe just just hope maybe there's real value there. Let's mm-hmm. not just throw mm-hmm. it out real quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, your immediate response when you're in a mixed gender space doing this kind of work together is like, this is fantastic. Where has this been all my life? And that's mm-hmm. a good impulse. Um, but there are very real benefits to the single gender spaces. And some of those are, um, you're just able to do different things. Um, so for example, we just taught Ephesians five in our, um, Bible study spaces at my church. And so the men, you're doing Ephesians at your church. I know. I, there it is again. There it is. I didn't choose it guys, but I did teach it. I did enjoy teaching it too, just to be clear. Uh, and so we were able to talk about, you know, the household codes in very nuanced ways that were helpful, I think, to the single gender spaces, but not only that, the pastoral concerns that are going to be addressed in a small group that is single gender versus mixed gender are going to be very different, typically, yeah. assuming you have high trust that you're able to develop. And I think you're able to develop a particular kind of trust in a single gender space that is not present in a mixed gender space. I think there is another beautiful kind of trust that develops in a mixed gender space. But, you know, a woman is not going to disclose a health concern, uh, you know, in a in a mixed group or a man, you know, or, or what's going on in a marriage won't be communicated in the same way if people are bringing up, you know, what's going on. And so it is important that we maintain those spaces. And then additionally, yeah. I think in terms of just learning outcomes, especially for women who may have had it over messaged that they're not supposed to enter in at a thought level into a conversation, it may be easiest for them to learn that kind of interaction in a single gender space where they don't feel like there will be a social penalty for weighing in at the thought level instead of at the feelings level. That's a very quick answer to a it really is a big question, but I would say also for for the men who maybe have felt like in a small group setting, they have to weigh in at the feelings level um, because it's all about building relationships. When you give them a space where they can all just weigh in at the thought level and not have a penalty associated with it, that's another nice thing that can happen. But then you can press them on the thing that's harder for them. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's a both uh, and. It is a both and. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, Hannah asked, how do each of your spouses support you in your ministry? Uh, how has being in ministry affected your marriages? I mean, I think all of us have wonderfully supportive spouses. Uh, just I, say, this could have been super awkward. I know. Right. Be like, <laughs> uh, I don't feel supported. It's just hard uh, out here. I really need to have a conversation with him. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think one of the cool things now that we've all gotten to spend a lot of time together is like our, our spouses are all different. Like, yeah. Like we don't, mm-hmm. it's not like there's, which I think is actually kind of encouraging for this question. Like we have very different spouses, like personality wise, temperament wise, wiring, gifting. Yeah. And 
they're all very supportive, which tells me like there's a lot of different ways of supporting people in ministry. So mm -hmm. that's encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like one kind of spouse is the paradigm of what mm -hmm. ministry support looks like. And we know that to be true in just healthy marriages. Like there's not just one paradigm. There's some biblical principles that we want everybody to live in, uh, given what God has said about us as his people and what we're called to in a marriage in light of scripture. But there's a lot of different unique ways that plays out given temperament and wiring and personality and preferences and desires and all sorts of things. So I'll just say, uh, my wife is, uh, very supportive and probably the principal way that she supports me is through prayer. Like mm. I, I don't want to, I mean, gosh, I don't want it to sound like I'm just kind of giving you a nice kind of soft answer, but the greatest ministry support that my wife affords me is just prayer. I'm going to pray with you. I want to pray for you. Oh, you're going into a really big meeting or you're kind of nervous about that sermon or you're, you're, you're insecure about this. Like, I just want to pray for you. Uh, and that prayer support is a huge, huge blessing. Being in ministry, I think a lot of, a lot of jobs that are people oriented and kind of uh, high demand, uh, it's stressful. I don't think ministry mm -hmm. positions are the only stressful jobs out there. I think doctors and nurses have really stressful jobs. I think teachers in educational environments have really stressful jobs. Uh, and so I wouldn't want to, to say being a ministry has, uh, that being a ministry is, is always going to be a stressful thing. I think there's a lot of stressful career options out there. Uh, but one of the things that I think ministry does affect your marriage in is it, it does pull you both in to a real close participation in the life of a church. Um, and that's going to come with some pros and cons, you know, there's going to be a sense in which it's hard sometimes to step away from the worshiping community because it's also like, it's also your career. That's just a difficult thing to balance. And your spouse feels that too. So I think those are some ways that and that's some ways that my wife supports me in our ministry uh, and how ministry affects my marriage. But I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. I'll add one thing real quick. And one of the best things that Macy does for me is she talks to me about a lot of stuff that aren't ministry. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just like, it's so easy when you're in ministry. And this isn't just true for ministry. It could be true if you're a, a business owner or heavily invested in your job. But when you're in ministry, you're probably pretty significantly invested in the things you do. And that's all you end up talking about or thinking about or praying about. And it's good. It's good to be invested in uh, to highlight the importance of the role that God's given you. That's great. But it's also really good to talk about the lawn, or it's good to talk mm -hmm. about the vacation you have coming up, mm -hmm. or it's good to talk about their jobs and what they have mm -hmm. going on in their life for mm -hmm. their kids. And so to make sure that ministry is never ultimate, Jesus is, that your relationship comes before ministry is important. And Macy is one of those people who, when I can feel like this is the biggest thing going on right now, and we have to talk about this and pray about this. She can just helpfully remind me that there's actually a bunch of other things going on of equal importance and value that Jesus also cares about. And that helps me regulate mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. okay, ministry is important, but Jesus is far more important or right. being a pastor is important, but being married is more important. Being a pastor is important, but being dad mm -hmm. is more important. Mm -hmm. And that just helps me kind of regulate the things that matter in life. I think early in ministry, I, I was very easy for me to make things to, to, to equate my relationship with Jesus to my relationship with ministry. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the last five or six years, I've realized those are not the same thing. They're not opposites, but they're not the same thing. And Macy's been the person that's helped me do that the most of just realize there's a lot of other really great, beautiful things in life that Jesus cares about other than your church. Yeah. Right. I think Jeff has been just my biggest cheerleader. He, um, mm. and I, it matters to me. It matters to me that he, 
values what I'm doing. It matters that he values it more than it matters that other people do in, in some regards, because he would know, you know, whether I was like two different versions of myself and yeah, right. uh, he would know if I was, you know, cutting corners, you know, in the things that I'm doing and I'm responsible for. And like he, uh, since I stepped back from my role at the church, he's traveling with me some more. And I hadn't realized that he hasn't always had a lot of eyes on what I do when I travel. And he just is hmm. so into it. I mean, he's like, I thought this one thing you said was really good, or I thought this was really helpful. And um, it's a new kind of a new season for us. Uh, awesome. Who knows, maybe he'll get tired of it at some point. But it's been really fun to have him. It just really puts wind in my sails to know that the hmm. person who knows me probably the best, um, is cheering for me and, and feels like I'm doing meaningful work and wants me to keep going. I love it. That's good. I love that. Uh, Samuel says, very thankful for your podcast and how's God, how God has used it to grow me deeper in relationship with himself. Thanks, Samuel. Uh, in episode 197, and you've mentioned it previously as well, you talked about how beginning in Genesis 3.15, we're told to look to the womb for salvation and that they uh, here there will be one who will crush the head of the serpent. Reading across translations, Genesis 3.15 often doesn't sound like a promise of victory or defeat since it's directed at the serpent. Would the first hearer's readers have understood it as a promise or is it something we project on this statement in hindsight i've got a thought on this but i want to create space for you guys to to go for it yeah well i think they're they they should hear it as a promise because of the way that the chapter ends with the with eve's name being given um it's a it's a hopeful name it's that she would be the mother of all living mm -hmm. which would reference back to that and so i think that if they missed it in that initial statement against the serpent the idea that the the final note in that chapter of all of the things that we could have landed on at the end of that chapter is Adam naming Eve, the mother of all living, um, would have, would have connected the dots for them. What do you That's think? That's right. That was exactly what I was going to say. You got, that was my thought. You nailed it. Um, I do think that the promise of the seed though, is something that is like a huge part of like the rest of the storyline and comes yes. up like in the promises with Abraham, it, it like keep, Look at how attentive the rest of the Pentateuch is yeah, to the line of the offspring. Like mm -hmm. why all of that attention given to a child or the children, or even in Paul's commentary on mm -hmm. the promised Abraham in Galatians, when um, he, he gets in and Paul is... Paul's doing a little bit of a apostolic imagination, I think, on the use of offspring in Genesis 12. But he goes back to kind of talk about the promise of the seed, uh, specifically mentioning that in the promise of Abraham, the promise wasn't of offsprings, plural, so to speak, but the offspring singular. Uh, and so there is an attention, there's attention given in the Pentateuch and then throughout the rest of the story of the Bible on this promised offspring, this promised mm -hmm. child. Uh, this is true in the Messianic prophecies as well, across Isaiah and Micah. And it's part of what's being fulfilled in the nativity story as we understand it. So I, I understand when you look at Genesis 3.15, you can kind of look at it from the vantage point of Adam and Eve and think, well, if it is a promise, it's rather cryptic and kind of hidden. But I think fairly early on, we get an understanding that Adam and, and Eve certainly view this as uh, a promise of life conquering death because of the naming of Eve. And I think the rest of the Pentateuch is a testimony that there is going to be kind of a magnifying glass, so to speak, on the promised offspring and the, the prospect that that offspring is eventually going to uh, have victory over the serpent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a little like saying, um, did Harry Potter understand his lightning scar the first time he looked at it in the mirror? 
the assumption of J.K. Rowling. I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I just introduced a spicy. Yeah. Don't read Harry Potter. It's demonic. Okay. But anyway, if, uh, but what is J.K. Rowling assuming when you read that first scene, she's assuming that you will read the entire story. And I think that that's something for us to keep in mind is that when you read Genesis three, the assumption is that you're going to read the whole story. And so but that that's it's right. going to be layered over and over again so that you then later go back and go, oh, that's what was going on there. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, Natalie I should asks, have gone with Tolkien or Lewis. I blew it, guys. I blew no. it. You had some safer examples, yeah. but I get yeah. you. Yeah. Um, Natalie asks, uh, JT, if the three persons of the Trinity have only one will, why would Christ need to intercede for us to the Father? Ooh, that's, mm. a, that's really, a good question. That's a really good question. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Okay, but I feel like we maybe need to do a little bit of like reminder of what Trinitarianism is before we jump into intercession. The reason it's important that God has one will is because there's only one God. This helps us understand some of the uh, incarnational realities of Christology, of Jesus saying, I don't know the day or the hour, only the Father knows, because he has two natures. Or things like, not my will be done, but your will be done, again, because he has two natures. We've done a lot of conversations about this, so I'm not going to go too deep into it right now. You can refer back to some of our episodes around Christology where we've talked about this, but I think it's really important that when we think about somebody interceding on our half, uh, on our on our behalf before God the Father, is it's both God and man. I think his intercession uh, before the Father isn't just a, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, not like a. It is an incarnational intercession. Mm -hmm. It is a man who has been tempted and tried in every single way common to man that he can understand our frailty. He knows our frame is the way we've said it before. And so when when uh, Christ is interceding before the Father on our behalf, it's not just God interceding to God or the Son interceding to the Father. It's somebody who's lived our life, who yeah. struggles with what we struggled with, or as Isaiah would say, was he knows our sicknesses, he understands mm -hmm. our diseases, he understands our frailties, he understands our temptations. And what a good news! What good news we have in the gospel is that the one who bore all of those things, not just on the cross, but in our life, like in our life, we don't talk about the active and passive obedience of Christ enough. He understands what it means to be a human. He died, didn't just die in our place, but he also, that human who now understands an incarnational reality is ascended before the Father. And it's that kind of person who didn't bow to temptation, who bore our sickness and diseases, intercedes on our behalf. And so when we think about an intercessor, it's not just somebody who intellectually knows, oh yeah, that that must be tough for them. He can say, oh yeah, I've felt that before. I remember when Macy got really sick uh, of, of, gosh, five years ago now, and there was so many wonderful prayers offered on her behalf and for us, but the ones that meant the most were the were from the people who we knew they had walked this road before. It was a couple who would come over and say, we know what a cancer diagnosis mm. is like, and we want to just be with you and pray for you. Mm. And I think that's uh, important here is Jesus's two two wills or two natures is his intercession is one of deep knowing. It's one of deep understanding and deep experience. And that intercession, it's not that it matters more in the sense of it would be more efficacious or more effective, but it matters more because we have a high priest who understands our frame and at the same time loves us. That's good. Thank you, JT. 
Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Robbie asks, where does children's ministry help and where does children's ministry hurt in the context of the Sunday gathering? What are potential pitfalls to be avoided when leading children's ministry? What parts shouldn't be overlooked? This could get spicy. This We've had some spicy, spicy questions. So. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole probably podcast episode. Well, give, mm-hmm. give us, give, yeah. give so us, go ahead. Give us your we'll thoughts. Take five okay. shots at yours. So I think it's important to um, recognize that any environment that functions, so whether we're talking children's ministry, student ministry, adult ministry, any environment that potentially functions as a substitute for the gathering is one that needs to be carefully handled. And um, so in the case of children's ministry, it is so great to be able to gather kids and have age-appropriate instruction. And uh, unfortunately, in a lot of our churches, it's it's tough to have both a time for that and a time for children who are old enough to come into the worship service. What you don't want is for the first time that your child comes into the gathering for them to be in, in middle school. I think that when you think about the years that we have to form a child, um, a child's moral development is set by about age 11, not age 18. And so if you wait until they're in middle school to bring them into what actually is the the place where the church gathers together, then they're going to be strangers in their own home at an age where you want them to already feel like that's the living room. So um, a lot of times I'll hear parents say, but my child's not going to get anything out of the sermon. And I think that that is not looking at it in terms of the way we would look at other spaces. Like you don't say, well, I'm not going to take my child to Thanksgiving dinner with the family because they're not going to get out of it what the adults are going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I'm not going to, you know, you can fill in the blank. And so when we think about it, we need to understand that just them being present in the room is formative, both for the child, but also for the gathering. It's good for all of us to be together in mm-hmm. that space. And so my husband is a huge children's ministry presence huge. He's, he's, you know, every Sunday he's in that space. I love children's ministry. If it becomes a substitute instead of a supplement, then um, it's important to think about ways to mitigate that. Yeah, I agree. And I want to jump in here. (laughs) I don't have a ton of experience. Like, listen, I don't have a ton of experience with a ton of ministry. I'm still young in the game. Um, Mosaic story, and our people know this firsthand really well. Mosaic is a church where 
out of you know almost 400 adult members, we have roughly 370 kids under the age of 10 years old. So mm-hmm. we are at an almost one to one ratio mm-hmm. of adults to children. And an incredible blessing that is. Kyle, that's crazy. We are very grateful for it, but it has presented some like very interesting questions. And I just want to give like a couple of things to consider. And um, I know that this will be going to like the wider audience than just the Patreon community. So I, this is a great question. I, I'm glad Robbie's asked it because it does give me an opportunity to say something. We don't talk a bunch about ministry strategy on, the, on knowing faith. It's not something mm-hmm. that we could do that maybe more, but I think we've been hesitant to do it so far, but this is something really important. Um, I think that having kids in the worship gathering is a good thing. And I know it makes it noisier. I really do. But Studies have shown, and we've all kind of come to believe this. I'll often meet adults who don't believe that having their kids in the gathering can do anything, but they're convinced by the studies that show that reading to their baby when the baby is in the womb improves brain function. And I wonder in my head just a little bit if, and I believe it, I believe reading to a baby when the baby's in the womb can improve brain function. I believe those studies are accurate. I really do. And I wonder if having a baby in a space where the word of God is being read and songs are being sung and prayers are being offered, I I don't know. I think I just think, you know, if reading to a baby in the womb can produce some cognitive benefit, then maybe having your second grader in the corporate worship service, like maybe that can also do something too. Um, and I think there is no replacement for, uh, for the family worshiping together as a normative experience. Um, I'm grateful for kids ministry curriculum and I'm grateful for kids ministry programming. I am, we offer it, uh, at Mosaic church, but, uh, I do not think there is any curriculum or program replacement to sons and daughters worshiping with moms and dads as a regular part of the spiritual diet. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, If you want some (laughs) sociological data to maybe help you think through this, Gabber Mate has a book called Hold On to Your Kids that I would recommend checking out. I'm not going to endorse every conclusion that that book comes to, but the book does state pretty clearly that we have a tendency in the West to overestimate the social influence of peer-based relationships and underestimate the influence of child-to-adult relationships with safe, formative, vibrant adults that have an aligned virtues compass. And I think that study should be grappled with when you think about kids' ministry in the life of the church. So anyways, those are my thoughts. JT, you want to get canceled here? (laughs) No. Great. Perfect. (laughs) I agree with what you guys said. Hey, can I maybe just make one more book recommendation that is not, this is not a kid's ministry book, but it is a society uh, book that I think helps us grapple the way that you just said is the coddling of the American mind and how we have, uh, there are so many studies coming out saying one of the major uh, reasons for the current mental health crisis among the next generation is because we've not let them roam and play and get you know, make mistakes and do things the wrong way and figure it out and have to sort things out with each other, with other adults. Uh, When we, one of the ways you could think about kids ministry is we are going to create a safe environment for kids where nothing goes wrong. Yeah. If that's what it is, then we're doing the wrong thing. What we want to do is disciple them, create age appropriate learning and learning curriculums, create peer. There's nothing wrong with peer based relationships. Kyle's not saying there's something wrong with that. But when you invite them into the life of the local church and they're being raised by the community, not just by parents are being raised in a environment where they're forced to grow and hear words from Kyle, like hypostatic union from the pulpit, 
They're like, wait a second, what does that mean, mom and dad? Like, that's not <laughs> a bad thing. That's a good thing. And so we we want to build resiliency, development, and growth in the next generation. And kids ministry wants to do that too. But if kids ministry is working against that grain, then we need to reevaluate some things. That's good. Good, good, good. Um, I'm looking at it. I, I, also, guys, you don't have to go to kids ministry. I got saved in college. Kids <laughs> ministry is like. Okay, <laughs> stop talking. But also um, find ways for kids to serve. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I agree Same with that. Thing too. Yes, I'm looking at notes from an elementary age kid at Mosaic. This is an elementary age kid. This, mm-hmm. These are notes from a teaching that some parents sent me. The Holy Spirit is working. The Holy Spirit is not a ghost. What does the Holy Spirit do? Doctrine of inseparable operation. The Holy Spirit ignites. The Holy Spirit in, uh, inspires. The Holy Spirit indwells. This is from a sermon where we preached on the Holy Spirit. That's an elementary age kiddo. And I think kids are capable of that. So mm-hmm. and I think your kids are capable of that. Uh, would you like to, uh, would like to hear your perspective on the Enneagram? Oh, we are, all three of us are <laughs> dyed in the wool. Huge. <laughs> And we eat, sleep, and breathe the Enneagram, all three of us. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's the first question I like question that Enneagram-Harry Potter combo, that cocktail yeah. right there. It's really good <laughs> in one podcast episode. <clears throat> no, that's not no. true. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the Enneagram. Do you, do we, do, do you want to say anything? Does anybody want to say anything here about this? I, I feel like the Enneagram is neither gold nor is it a nuclear bomb. I think that we give these things too much credit or too little credit. I just feel like it is another one of these little personality test things. I know that some people swear by it. I don't, I mean, I think, Hey, if it's helpful, great, whatever. That's how I feel about the Enneagram. Am I, I mean, you're looking at, you guys all are, I got. Okay, great. JT, you uh, it has felt here? like a, it has felt like a cultural artifact I need to be aware of because so many people are talking about it. Um, but I don't, I mean, you know, I don't beyond, there's always a new personality test coming out. And so I try to look for like, if there's useful language in it, but I'm, I don't, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the thing yeah. I don't love is when people are like, this is just who I am, you know, yeah. but I know that that right. not the goal of all of that. Um, yeah. but I know that sometimes that can happen. That's right. Yeah, I agree. I think there's, there's, there's a good path to, to, uh, be trod with anything like this, whether it's the Myers-Briggs or Enneagram that it's helpful, but the two ditches that we've kind of highlighted just to make them maybe a bit clearer is there's one ditch of like, this is who I am. It's always going to be who I'm going to be. And it can actually be used as a license for sin or as a license to not continue to grow and develop. Like I'm a one. So therefore this is what you get. That's not how the Enneagram should be used. There's another ditch that says, uh, the Enneagram is from the devil. And mm-hmm. because it isn't sourced in Christian theology, we should avoid it. I'm like, okay, I'm not sure how you read John 1 uh, without using sources outside of the Christian tradition, like mm-hmm. Platonic sources, like Logos. And so right. it's okay for us to plunder the Egyptians and learn and benefit from other sources the way that you just said, Kyle, and take it or leave it. It's not, it's not the end-all be-all. You shouldn't think of it as a silver bullet. You also probably shouldn't uh, I like Jen's language of cultural artifact. It's so spoken of right now and talked about that it helps uh, when the church is aware of what's going on culturally and to speak to those specific issues. Christine, Kyle, what number? You're a three. Uh huh. Yep. That's what all the time. Te- Jen, th- Jen you're a th- you're a four. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a six. I'm here to help. There we go. <laughs> no, I'm a two. Uh, I, was, I was supposed to say a two. <laughs> I'm a two. two. All women in ministry are twos, guys. (laughs) Uh, So grateful for y'all. Thank you for your ministry. What are your thoughts? Uh, This is Christine. What are your thoughts on how to deeply disciple in a space where the few seasoned believers are already at capacity? Are there good resources available for volunteers who want to make a difference in small groups but aren't realistically able to jump in on a cohort or start up 
and Institute. Great question, Christine. Um, what would you tell to somebody, uh, uh, JT, uh, how to deeply disciple in a space where there are a few seasoned believers already at capacity? Like, what would you tell them? Like, oh, we're, hey, we're already maxed out. Like, we can't keep doing this. Like, we're at capacity. What, are we, what, what should we do? Yeah, again, I, I don't know this specific situation, so I don't want to uh, say that what I'm going to say applies there. But I would say if your seasoned believers are at capacity and it's actually not producing other disciples that are making disciples, they're at capacity doing the wrong things. Uh, and so what we want to do is create environments and spaces where our capacity is going towards creating other ministers of the gospel, mm -hmm. uh, that the whole church would be ministers of the gospel. So again, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that's go what's going on at this specific church, but... Uh, what we can never do as ministry leaders is say, sorry, I'm at capacity. No more disciples can be made here uh, because your capacity should be going towards making disciples who make disciples. So that being said, let's just maybe create a case study again. And I'm not sure if this is this specific church, but a case study of the senior pastor is, you know, he's preaching 50 times a year, only gets two weeks off or something like that. Or he's too busy to to make, to make to, to write an institute curriculum or a men's Bible study or something like that. Man, I think the next year should really go towards him developing either another preacher, teacher, or somebody who can write curriculum for him. What we don't want to do is make the vocation of ministry select to those who are being paid to do it. It's those who are being paid to do it who are supposed to create others who are doing it in the life of their church. So we have uh, 11 weeks in our women's Bible study right now, and we have about 450 women in our Bible study at Storyline. And it's my executive director who teaches it. And she's real busy. I mean, she's helping us oversee building campaigns and project management and fundraising and all kinds of stuff. So she's given four of those weeks away to other women, two, uh, two and two. So it's, uh, and they're not on staff. They're not, uh, they're not paid by Storyline. And so she's past capacity, but in her capacity issues, she's saying, I would like for other people to help come alongside me and make disciples, if that makes sense. Yep. That's good. That is really good and really great question, Christine. And also when you ask, are there good resources available for volunteers who want to make a difference in small groups but aren't realistically able to jump in on a cohort or start up an institute? I'll tell you, we are actually at work right now trying to build a great resource like this. We cannot tell you all that it is right now, but it is in motion. We're very excited about it and we think it'll help address some of uh, what you're asking for there. Uh, Steven asked if this one I'm going to give to Jen because I've heard you talk about this before. Jen, uh, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, how should we think about what the fear of the Lord is? Well, you can see it in miniature in the giving of the Ten Commandments when after they received them in thunder and lightning from Mount Sinai, Moses basically says to them, don't fear, but fear. He he says, I'm sorry, I should have pulled up the reference. Let me, I've got my Bible open right here. I'm going to flip back to it. Exodus chapter 20. And he says... Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And so when we think about the fear of the Lord, we have to understand what it isn't and what it is, because if we're not supposed to be afraid, but we are supposed to fear God, then those are not the same thing. So we don't fear that the wrath of God will fall upon us because we know that the wrath of God has fallen upon Christ in our place. Um, but we do give right reverence and awe to borrow the language of Hebrews chapter 
12, we give right reverence and awe to God. We give him what is his due. The right response to a vision of God high and lifted up is that we would worship. We would recognize that he is high and lofty and we are small and of yesterday and know nothing. And so Job's response is the proper one when he's confronted with the the transcendence of God. Isaiah's response is the proper one. Um, you know, elsewhere in the scriptures, we see this Peter in the boat with Jesus. It's the proper response. And so it's not a fear of being consumed by the wrath of God, but it is a right reverence for the towering glory of God. Bang. There we go. Great question, Stephen. Uh, Julie, wrapping us up here. Uh, a plain reading of scripture often seems to be selectively encouraged to support a particular view, but ignores the complexities of the original culture and language that could potentially support an opposing or alternative view. Further, such an approach seems to elevate the English trans translation, which is neither inspired nor inerrant. We're going to come back to that in a minute, Julie. Uh, and a Western-centric <laughs> interpretation. What are your thoughts on how, when to apply a plain reading of Scripture versus diving deep into the original language, culture, context to inform our understanding and application of God's Word? P.S. Thank you for your ministry here on Knowing Faith. Julie, really well-articulated question here. Mm -hmm. A few things to think about. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's you're asking a really good question, and you're asking it in a really smart way. So thank you. It's a really good question. Mm -hmm. When when people talk about a plain reading of scripture, I, I don't know what everybody means when they're talking about a plain reading of scripture. Um, I, I don't. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe that does, that does seem to be the thrust of her question is that like uh, that a plain reading of scripture is kind of a shorthand way of saying the way I'm reading this is the only way to read it. It's so simple. So clear. Um, obvious to everybody. It's so obvious to everybody. I, I, I can understand how that is used like casually like that way. I often have heard seminary context or with professors or even kind of thinking through this historically that a plain reading of scripture is often more of a wooden reading of scripture or a very kind of literalist reading of scripture or what can just be the superficial sense of what's happening there. And so I don't really know that everybody who says, I think a plain reading of this verse is invoking it for the purpose of just saying like, this is so clear. It has to, like, you have to agree with me. They might just saying the first read of this verse does come across this way, but it's definitely the case that when you're doing any serious study of God's word to the degree of which you're able with the resources at your disposal and with the uh, education you have um, and the tools that you have, you should dive in to the original language, culture, and context to inform your understanding and application of God's word. That's a good thing to do in Bible study whether you're teaching it or you're just trying to come to a faithful understanding of the text itself. So I don't think you have to go, uh, well, I'm going to be satisfied with a plain reading of the Bible until it gets too complicated. And then I'm going to dive in to try to understand it better. No, I think understanding it better is good. This isn't to say that every time you read the Bible, you have to be doing inductive Bible study on it. There is an approach to reading the Bible. That's okay. Just a prayerful, more devotional, um, you know, I think within the history of the church, it's called electo divina approach to reading scripture, which is just more of a prayerful, responsive mode of reading the Bible, which is fine. That's a great, that's a fine way to read the Bible prayerfully and, and worshipfully and devotionally. Um, but when you do want to study what the Bible has to say, 
you're going to need to dive into some of the background culturally, historically, contextually. Um, and that's important. So I don't know that I would say, hey, this is how you're supposed to read the Bible. You're only supposed to be doing this kind of plain reading, more responsive reader response type of reading of the Bible versus inductive Bible study. You want both and as a regular part of uh, your diet when it comes to consuming and interpreting the Bible. I will say this just as a note. When you say this approach seems to elevate the English translation, which is neither inspired nor inerrant, I am going to throw a flag on the field here, uh, Julie. And that's because I believe that solid English translations should be understood to be inspired. And, and my operative word for this would be inspired and infallible. I'm not going to get into that, why that is now. I don't have a problem with inerrancy language. It's just not the word I typically use. Um, but inspired and infallible. I think you can have a high degree of, uh, of confidence that the English translation that you have in front of you is very, 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 very close to uh, the original manuscripts and their testimony. So yes, while the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy applies specifically to original manuscripts that we do not have, it has historically been the view of those who hold to inspiration and inerrancy that the Bibles, English translations that we have in front of us, along with other translations that are faithful to the original manuscripts in other languages that aren't English, Spanish, for example, Portuguese, that those translations can be viewed as inspired and inerrant or infallible by virtue of their coherence and correspondence to the original manuscripts. So don't doubt your English translation. And if you're listening to this afterwards, I, I, the, the Bible is the most well attested, your English translation of the Bible or any faithful translation in any language. It's not a Western thing. It's not an English supremacy thing. Just faithful translations of the manuscripts that we have is a reliable testimony to the original manuscripts. And it is the most well attested ancient document in the world. And it's not even close. Like nobody sits around going, I wonder if we can trust uh, Aristotle's metaphysics. You know how many copies we have of it? It's not a well-attested ancient document, but nobody's hand-wringing around it, you know? So you can trust your English translation of the Bible. You should trust your English translation of the Bible. And if you don't, let's talk about finding you a better English translation of the Bible. So anything to add to that, guys? Well, we live in a golden age where you can compare different English translations. And so if you hit a bump in one that you're in, then look at a couple of other major translations and see if it helps. But yes, I would agree. I think that you, you would, there's, you know, it's not like crazy stuff is happening in between different uh, major translations. There we go. I'm going to say one last thing that gets kind of technical. We could do a whole podcast episode on this, but I'm, I'm only going to talk about it for less than a minute, I promise. But I, th I think I heard, Kyle, was there something about like Western context there? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So one thing that every interpreter needs to do is recognize their historical locatedness mm -hmm. and who they are. Mm -hmm. And that's okay to recognize. But I also want to say we should never apologize mm -hmm. for it. We should never say, I'm so sorry that I'm reading the Bible from a Western context, and therefore I can't understand mm -hmm. it. The same way somebody from from an Eastern context or a South American context shouldn't apologize for the way that they're reading the Bible. We recognize it. We try to realize what assumptions does this bring to the text that might help me read the Bible or what assumptions might I bring to the text to help me not read the Bible well. 
And there's two ways, to, I'll say three ways that we can make sure that our historical situatedness doesn't influence our uh, situated epistemology. First is we read the Bible with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit encompasses all cultures, situations, and historical contexts. So we prayerfully read the Bible. We also read the Bible in community. That community could be your local church, your home group, your small group, your men's or women's Bible study, and that helps you see things that you hadn't seen before. And finally, we read it uh, with the historic church. We want to read this with brothers and sisters who've gone before us, who've been full of the Holy Spirit, who've seen things in the text that they're going to help us see that they got right and they got wrong. They weren't infallible either. Only the text is infallible. But I, I, I've heard this over and over and over again over the last couple of years that it's kind of saying we can't really read the Bible well because we're Western. And I just want to push back against that and say the point is the Bible is meant to be read by all peoples in all places, in all situations, in the Holy Spirit with the grain of our current community and with the grain of the historical community that the Holy Spirit has been illuminating for 2000 years. Good. Love it. Guys, you're the best audience in podcasting. We love the Patreon community. If you want to find out how to be a part of that, you can go to trainthechurch.com slash support. Uh, if you want to find us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, we're Knowing Faith, wherever you're at. Uh, if you heard about great resources or products earlier in the show, make sure to check out the show notes for a link to our sponsor's webpage or on the Train the Church website under the Knowing Faith podcast to find resources, discounts, and products we vet and believe in. A lot of you ask us for book recommendations. A lot of you message me on social media saying, on this one episode, four seasons ago, you mentioned a book and I can't find it. You can go to the 10 of those.com slash partners slash knowing faith. And they have done us the service of categorizing all the book recommendations we have made by season. It is really, really helpful. So if you want to go find a book that we've recommended, go to 10 of those.com slash partners slash knowing faith. You can find one of those book recommendations. If you are, you're thinking, what am I going to do until the next season of Knowing Faith kicks up? Well, it's kicking off here in mid-January as we continue our journey in Exodus. But if you haven't had a chance to check out our sister show, Tiny Theologians, or Family Discipleship Podcast, or Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson, go check out those podcasts right now. I know that you'll profit from listening to them. We hope you enjoyed the discussion this season. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.